This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including eBooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. What is the function and meaning of the kavod of the Lord in the Old Testament, and how is it integral to the book of Ezekiel especially? Peter de Vries takes a canonical and synchronic approach to these questions, demonstrating that in Ezekiel, kavod is used almost exclusively as a hypostasis of the Lord. Tune in as we speak with Peter de Vries about his monograph, The Kavod of the Lord in the Old Testament, with particular reference to the book of Ezekiel. You're listening to New Books and Biblical Studies, a channel of the New Books Network, and I'm Michael Morales, your host. Peter DeVries is Assistant Professor of Biblical Theology and Hermeneutics at Free University of Amsterdam. He is also a scholar of Christian doctrine with a thesis on John Owen. Peter, welcome to New Books and Biblical Studies. Yes, thank you. So, Peter, tell us about yourself and what led you to study the book of Ezekiel. Yes, I can tell you I was born in 1965-6 in a family in which the Lord was feared and served. And my own heart was touched by the power of the gospel when I was about 40 years old. The following years, I felt more and more the urgency to become a preacher of the gospel. And so I started studying theology and also Semitical languages. But I found it very important that you could easily read the Bible in the original languages at the University of Utrecht. And after that, I became a pastor in the National Reformed Church of the Netherlands. I can describe myself as a confessing Reformed Evangelical pastor and theologian, loving the Reformed confession of grace and salvation, not just before, for historical reasons, but because I can say it expresses my faith by which I hope to live and to die. In 20, uh, 2004, the National Church was united, among others, with the Lutheran Church, the constitution was changed, and I stayed with the minority who wanted to continue the Reformed Church. I served as a pastor at five congregations, and since 2005, I combined the partnership of a congregation with the post of lecturer at the seminary of the continued Reformed Church. But because of the illness of my wife, I had to give up the combination of lecturer and pastor. I continued as just as lecture. My wife passed away just a year ago. She was a real helper for me, so I lament her loss greatly, but it comforts, comforts me that she's with the Lord now. And just before my wife passed away, I started a new position. I'm a lecturer now for a foundation called Piety and Theology, and it gives courses on academic level, both for pastors, but also for lay people, who are interested in the Bible and its message on academic level. And the convention of this 
foundation is that the theology is just is more than just explaining what you believe. It is above only thinking what has God revealed to us in his word. Real theology is finally not about the faith of the community, but about God himself, in, which, in whom we believe. With regard to my dissertation, I did it on the supervision of Natalia Brenner, a Jewish feministic scholar. That seems quite strange. And I came in touch with her by accident. I wanted uh, to write a second uh, doctoral dissertation. I wrote already a dissertation on John Owen. So I was looking on the internet and I found the professor Brenner teaching theology and Hebrew at the University of Amsterdam. I wrote the mail to her thinking she was a man and she wrote me, she mailed me back, do you realize that I'm a Jew, a woman and a feminist scholar? And I mailed back, I didn't realize that, but I could not object that she was a Jew, but because our savior is a Jew, I could not object that she was a woman, but God created male and female. But I also said, I wrote, wrote I am an evangelical, uh, confessing evangelical, I have nothing with feministic theology. She said, let us uh, 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 make an appointment. So I met her and uh, I started to work with her. And mythologically and philologically, I learned very much from her. We appreciated each other as persons very much. And I can say when my thesis was evaluated and one of the members of the committee made a remark that I continually presuppose the unity of the Old Testament, or when you say it in the Jewish way, the Tanakh, Atalia said, of course, for Peter is an Orthodox, evangelical Christian. She gave me full opportunity to be myself. And at the same time, I learned from her very much on methodological and philological levels. That about myself. So before turning to the book of Ezekiel, tell us about the term kavod. What is its semantic range and why did you choose to pursue this topic? Well, let me first start with why I choose to pursue it to this topic and then uh, about the semantic range. During my study of theology and semantic languages in Utrecht, I was uh, especially drawn to the book of Ezekiel. The associate professor who taught the Old Testament in a very passionate way wrote a commentary on it. And that was one of the reasons uh, the book attracted me. Besides that, Ezekiel is less well known than the other two great prophets. So that was also the reason I wanted to investigate this prophet in a closer way, and reading Ezekiel, I was struck by the combination of its message and structure. Um, before uh, answering your question about the semantic range of Kavod, let me say something about that. The Kavod or glory of the Lord was revealed to Ezekiel, although he was an exile in Babel. Ezekiel was a priest. He was called when he was 13 years old. Normally, you start as a priest then in the temple of Jerusalem. But now, in Babel, that was not possible for him. But you can say that his calling as a prophet had a priestly character, uh, a dedication of a priest took seven days. And we see when Ezekiel is called after second seven days, 
the glory of the Lord is revealed anew to him. So his whole message has a priestly character. We can say he was a priestly prophet. In Ezekiel uh, 8 to 11, the departure of the glory of the Lord from the temple is described. And in the final vision, the return. What intrigued me was the very concrete way in which the kavod or glory of the Lord was described, described in Ezekiel. So I wanted to investigate the semantic uh, uh, range of kavod in the whole Old Testament. That was what I first did to get a better sign on the book of Ezekiel. Etymologically, kavod comes from the meaning, from the root kavod, to be heavy. However, the meaning of a word is determined by its usage. Several dictionaries state that the meaning of be heavy must always be connected with kavod, but I don't think that that is always the case. But certainly, when kavod is used for humans, we, we still hear that notion of be heavy. Uh, the kavod of a person is connected with his possession, with his power, with his might. We can read not only of the kavod of man, but also of a city, of a land, and related to humans, it is especially ascribed to princes and kings. And then we often see the combination of kisei, throne, and kavod. And when we hear about the kavod of the Lord, it must certainly have to do that he is the creator of heaven and earth, that all things belongs to him. And also in connection with the Lord, we more than once see the connection of throne and kavod, kisei and kavod in Hebrew. Kabot has the meaning glory, majesty, power, connected with possession, with mighty acts. It can also have the notion honor, and that is the case when it is used in connection with Natan. Only then, and that is a, a, an example that certain meanings uh, only occur in relation to other words. And Natan Kabot is giving honor or glory to God. Used for the Lord, it can refer to its mighty acts, but in Ezekiel, not only in Ezekiel, but especially in Ezekiel, the glory or kavod of the Lord is a kind of semi-independent manifestation of the Lord himself. In my dissertation, I used the word hypostasis. You can say it is an Old Testament indication for plurality in God. For God dwells in heaven, but his glory, and his glory is in a certain sense the Lord himself, but his glory dwells in the temple in Jerusalem. But very concrete as a semi-independent manifestation of, Lord, of the Lord, the kavod of the Lord is described in Ezekiel, always in connection with light radiance. How is kavod used in other places in the Bible, like the Pentateuch or the Psalms? Yeah. As I said, kabod cannot only be used for God, but also for humans. When it is used for humans, most of the references you find in the book of Proverbs. And also in the Psalms, quite a number of the occurrences of kabod have to do with man, but also with God. Connected with God, you find the references of kabod, especially in the Pentateuch, Exodus to Numbers, Isaiah, Ezekiel and Psalms. Uh, 
There is also a close connection, and you see that in the Psalms, you see it in Isaiah, between the Kavod of the Lord and the Kavod of Jerusalem, the temple, its attributes. But remarkable for Ezekiel is that he never uses the word Kavod for the temple, for the land, with just one exception, only for the Lord. The one exception is the Pharaoh of Egypt, but then it is a description of his pride. So remarkable for Ezekiel is not the number of references of Kabbalah, for actually connected with the Lord, the number of references uh, in Isaiah is higher. But remarkable for Ezekiel is that just with one exception, Kabbalah is only used for the Lord. And that is also remarkable when you compare it with the other books of the Bible. That's only in Ezekiel. Peter, would you explain for our audience the significant function of kavod in the book of Ezekiel? Not only in terms of its meaning, but the role of the kavod of the Lord in the book's movement. The synonyms of kavod, tifereth, hadar, they are never used for the Lord in Ezekiel. Only for the glory of the temple. So uh, there is a very close connection uh, linguistically between Kawot and Lord in the book of Ezekiel. The second thing I would mention is that I said you can speak about uh, the Kawot as of hypostasis. All the occurrences uh, uh, related to the Lord in Ezekiel, and then just with one exception, has that notion. The one exception is in Ezekiel 39. There it has to do with the glorious acts of God. But all the other references we find in the visions of Ezekiel, the calling vision, Ezekiel 1 to 3, the vision of the departure of the glory of the Lord from the temple, Ezekiel 8 to 11, and the final vision, the temple vision, Ezekiel 40 to 48. And in all these visions, the glory has that character of a hypostasis or semi-independent manifestation of God. Ezekiel was in Babel and the city was not destructed. It was the first exile, the first going in exile under King Joachim. But the city was still in existence. And, and, and the inhabitants of Jerusalem had, had the hope that they would survive. But the remarkable thing is that the glory of God is revealed to a prophet in Babel. That makes clear, and especially the, the further book of Ezekiel makes it clear there is no hope for the existing Jerusalem and its inhabitants. But there is hope for the exiles in Babel. The Lord reveals himself to them. And he is not restricted to, to the land of Israel. That's also a message. And then in a vision, uh, Ezekiel is transported to the temple in Jerusalem, you see all the iniquities that happens there, idolatry, and how the glory of the Lord leaves the temple. And then the temple cannot stand longer. It will certainly be destructed. Before the temple is destructed, the glory of the Lord has already departed from the temple. And then in the final vision, we see the glory of the Lord comes back. But it is all the work of the Lord alone. By the sins of the people, uh, uh, the glory of the Lord departs from the temple, 
but it is only because the Lord wants to uphold his own name that his glory comes back, not because the people have deserved it. Yeah? And that is emphasized by Ezekiel again and again. He has a very theocentric message. He has been characterized as the Calvin of the Old Testament. And you can say together with Jeremiah, they don't neglect the call to repentance, but much emphasis falls on the fact that the Lord himself worked repentance in the heart. Ezekiel writes, he, he wrote the, the law in your inward parts. Ezekiel says, he takes the stony heart from you and he gives you a, a, a heart of flesh. And, and quite often then, the word I is used without really uh, linguistically uh, necessary. In verbal sentences, again and again, the word, the Hebrew word I, Ani, is used for the Lord. Of the 169 occurrences of the word I, 160 are for the Lord. Also, uh, a sign of the theocentric message of, uh, of the book of Ezekiel. And the nine other times, three times for the uh, Pharaoh of Egypt, but it's again a sign of pride. And two times for, for Tyrus. But then again a sign of pride. And four times for the prophet. But then it's really necessary linguistically to do it. With just one exception. When the prophet uh, says in anguish. Uh, Will you uh, destroy all the remnant of the house of Israel? Am I only left? And then the word I is used in a verbal sentence for the prophet just to stress, uh, am I only left? And the anguish of the prophet. The last time that the word Ani is used for the prophet, that is a, a sign for the people. A sign of judgment. In a sign action, the prophet makes clear that, uh, uh, that the people of Jerusalem uh, will have to leave uh, their cities, the city and Salah. But we can say that the prophet is also a sign of hope for the exile. Uh, as an answer on his question, whether the Lord has uh, given up the, the, the remnant of his people, he, he receives the promise that the Lord himself will be a little sanctuary or a sanctuary for a little time um, in exile. And I think that the prophet himself is in a certain sense with his message, that little sanctuary, or sanctuary for a little time. Um, the first part of Ezekiel is above all a message of judgment, not only judgment, but almost only judgment. Then you have the prophecies against the surrounding people, and then the restoration of the people, and then in the second half, you have promises, almost only promises of, of salvation, hope, and restoration. What struck me is that you have three times the call oh, to repent in Ezekiel. The last time in Ezekiel 33. And then from Ezekiel 34, the real restoration is described. And then you don't find longer the call to repentance, but that God himself realizes repentance. I don't think that, uh, that uh, we can draw the conclusion that the call uh, 
to repentance must not go out, but finally the call to repentance stands under uh, the, the great uh, reality of God who, who, who works faith and repentance. But at the same time, we must say the call in Ezekiel 33 to repent is so powerful for the Lord, say he desires the, uh, the repentance of the ungodly, and he also takes an oath. He swears by his own name. His own existence is involved. So you find the very urgent call to repentance. But when we see that the people repent, all stress is that the Lord does it and he allows. What would you say is the central message of Ezekiel? I would say the central message of Ezekiel is the glory of the Lord himself. And that God glorifies himself in in the people of Israel, that they come back uh, from uh, exile. It cannot be explained from their possibilities. <laughs> then you have that forced vision of Ezekiel outside the visions in which you have the glory of the Lord, that famous vision for a person known with the content of the Bible, the vision of the dead bones. <laughs> That's the situation of Israel. And the Lord makes them alive. Uh, um, what struck me when you read the, the final vision is that not the glory of the temple is emphasized. We don't read about the silver of the temple, the gold of the temple, the precious stones of the temple. Just this function is emphasized and it's holiness. It has seven parts of growing holiness, an outer wall. Uh, an outer curtain, an inner wall, an inner curtain, the, the, the porch, the holies, and the holies of holies, holies. And only the surface sizes are given, except the altar in the inner curtain, the table or altar in the holies, and the tables on which the sacrifices were slaughtered. So all emphasis on the function of the temple, and that the temple is the dwelling place of the Holy One of Israel not the glory of the building itself. And we don't find the high priest uh, in the final vision of the Temple of Ezekiel. There are all series about it, uh, historical critical series, but I think that its real message is that this temple is such a holy temple, no high priest is necessary now, so the holy of holiness will never be ended by any man. And the, 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 the altar in the holy seems to be more a table, the table of showbread. And it is not stated with so many words, but when I'm right, that means that the holy is only entered on the Sabbath day, not each day, as was usual in the Temple of Solomon and in the tabernacle, but, but only on the Sabbath day. And to emphasize the holiness of God and the the last words of Ezekiel are just an, a summary of, of his message. The Lord is there. The Lord is there. What's also uh, remarkable is that the temple is outside the city. The, 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 the temple is more important than the city. And there is just uh, the temple is not in the city, but outside the city, in the midst of, uh, in the midst, just exactly in the midst of the four square is the, is the temple, and more in the south of the four square is the city. 
And when you ask the question as a Christian, how it is all fulfilled in the New Testament, I would first say that Jesus himself is the temple. I find the temple vision realized in Jesus himself. And then you can say the New Testament has the same emphasis on holiness as the Old Testament, but in the New Testament there is because God is revealed in the flesh. An emphasis on drawing need to God and freedom in drawing need to God. And that we in Christ enter as believers in prayer, the Holy of Holies. And then I can say in that sense, it surpasses what, what Ezekiel said. Fulfillment may always surpass what's promised. It may never be less, but it, it may always be more. <laughs> you understand? And also you can say that the, the, the church of God is in the church of God uh, in which Jesus dwells by his spirit. Uh, uh, we see uh, uh, the fulfillment of the vision of Ezekiel, but the final fulfillment we find at the end of the, of the New Testament. And then we see a city coming down from heaven. And then remarkable things. It is a, again a city without a temple. But in that city, the temple is still in their midst, but Jesus himself is the temple. So that's with me <laughs> reading the Old Testament and the New Testament together. Atalia Brennan, you, I did it in that way. She couldn't read the Bible herself in that way, but she respected that I did. So Peter, before letting you go, what else are you working on? Can you tell us about any projects? No, I, uh, there was already published a book written by me in Dutch on the Old Testament service of sacrifice. Um, uh, Ezekiel is a priestly prophet. I studied intensively the, the final vision of Ezekiel, and then you see many relations with, with, with uh, Exodus, but especially Leviticus. So I wrote a, a book on an academic level uh, concentrating on the five books of Moses, but also what, the, what in the whole Old Testament is written about the service of sacrifice. And, having also a chapter on the New Testament, paying especially attention on Hebrews. Now I'm writing on a complete other book in a certain sense, Hermeneutics, that also belonged to my task as lecture, Hermeneutics. And I'm writing a book on the, the cross and the New Testament that has to do with sacrifices that needs no explanation. And I'm writing a more popular book on uh, the... Uh, Application of redemption, the order of salvation. But that's just for yeah, a more popular book. And besides that, I'm preparing sermons each week and preaching as a guest speaker in congregation, proclaiming the gospel. That's my most important duty. All my academic labors I see in that context. Peter, again, thank you for this fine study on Ezekiel and for being with us today. Thank you. Friends, you've been listening to New Books and Biblical Studies, a channel of the New Books Network. Until next time, goodbye.